This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. Reagan, basically, and post-Reagan, what you see is, is this... And I saw a great quote that said something like, it's not that these institutions have moved further right. It's that they've moved further away from reality. Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by our friends at Search Associates. Your boy is back. This is my first time here in the lovely, not that warm actually, Moonyard Studios in North Tacoma. Uh, I am home from the summer and the show continues. My guest today is a three-time show guest, ergo Smoking Jacket Society member, Professor Amy Young, a communications professor from our friends at Pacific Lutheran University. We are going to be having today another one of our Nerd Farmer Academy conversations. Uh, my goal is to create a conversation that is usable for, for a classroom teacher. So if you're teaching AP Lang or AP Government and you're teaching about rhetoric, then this is the episode for you. So Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Amy, I'm super glad to have you on today. This is the, I think you were actually possibly one of the last episodes I recorded before I left for Abu Dhabi. Uh, we I were talking right. yeah, about education technology. And so mm-hmm. we're going full circle. Uh, I want to get right into this. You have a book that's coming out, or is it already out? It is in manuscript form okay. with a press. And so. so I want to talk through that book and also just some of your writing as a professor who, st- who studies and teaches rhetoric. Uh, I, let's start with this quote really fast. Uh, you wrote, in 1964, uh, Barry Goldwater's speech for the Pelican no- nomination, he declared that extremism and defensive liberty is no vice. A phrase that marked a rhetorical and stylistic shift in conservative policymaking, campaigning, and discourse for 50 years to come. While Goldwater and even Nixon and Reagan would likely not find much of a home in today's Republican Party or conservative movements because he would now be too left, his affirmation of extremism as at least a means, if not an end, is ubiquitous and colors every aspect of modern conservatism. Let's unpack that. Okay. Um, So for folks who are interested in what conservative rhetoric is now— And the way that I like to think about rhetoric just to begin with, because that's a word that gets tossed around that has a lot of meanings, and even in rhetorical studies, it has a lot of meanings. But at its base, we're talking about the available means of persuasion, if we go back to Aristotle. So we're talking about how do people use everything that's around them, their bodies, their voices, um, their the way they dress, you know, the way they use media, et cetera, to persuade people to adopt a particular kind of worldview or a set of actions or a set of policy positions. And if you're interested in knowing what one of the major turning points is that marks the shift that we are seeing now, you would have to go back to Goldwater. And Goldwater really believed that 
extremism was not really so much a problem <laughs> as long as it was in defense of his conception of liberty. Mm -hmm. uh, as we probably know, to Barry Goldwater was against the passage of the Civil Rights Act. He was against the passage of the Voting Rights Act. He came to regret those decisions later, but in that campaign— um, Lyndon Johnson, obviously, uh, was someone who could capitalize on a different sort of social movement. Um, and it was clear by even by that point that America was headed in a different direction than Goldwater uh, conceived of. But if we think about the level of extremism that we see now, this is not a new development. It's just new instantiations and new people um, sometimes old people, but newer people to the same kinds of tricks. Um, and and when I think about what conservative rhetoric is or does, um, I like to think about rhetoric also as constitutive as itself an event, that it creates an event, that words can be an event. Mm -hmm. And that when we think about the words that people use and the way that they use them and the way that audiences are structured or unstructured in our current media environment, there's a lot to think about in terms of how extremism has created the modern conservative movement. Let's take a walk through the history of conservative rhetoric. Mm -hmm. uh, so... I think most modern conservatives who, like, have read a book or two mm -hmm. uh, cite the founding of their movement and, like, Edmund Burke's writings sure. and, like, the response to the French Revolution. But, like, that's kind of far back. Uh, when we're talking about, like, 1960s conservatism, like, you cite Goldwater here. Uh, I often think about William F. Buckley. Absolutely. And so what's interesting to me is to go back and revisit the debates between Buckley and James Baldwin. Mm -hmm. And essentially what has happened over time is is that— the arguments that Buckley was making in the 60s against Baldwin are the exact same arguments that are being made today by modern conservatives. Mm -hmm. But the level, of, the level of sophistication has gone down and the level of bile has gone up. Absolutely. So help me get my head around where you, how you have a movement that creates both Barry Goldwater and William F. Buckley and then that we pick the Goldwater version of that but actually without the Goldwater policies – Right. Like so essentially modern conservatism is the, the, the outrage of Goldwater, the beliefs of Buckley and then like infused with nationalism and all sorts of other dangerous dangerousness like in the mix. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm interested in and I realize this is going to seem like a sort of um, – roundabout answer to what you just asked This me. is the format for those. Okay. So that's totally fine. So starting with Buckley, in fact, uh, when we think about um, the institutional structures around us, so when we think about academic institutions and we think about media institutions in particular, what started to happen in the middle part of the 20th century is that intellectuals had already started to move into universities mm -hmm. because there was Red Scare commie hunting happening, essentially. And intellectuals were among the first always, right, to be targeted as potentially communists and potentially anti-American. And 
um, this is you know, McCarthyism, et cetera, moved a lot of people who had been doing more public intellectual work into academic institutions. And what happened then is that academic institutions, at least among the faculty, not in their structure and not in the way that they're run, started to move left, okay? Um, Again, I think academic institutions are super conservative in many ways, and they're very bureaucratic, and they're very slow to change, and um, it's very difficult to be dynamic in an academic institution. So there's that. But among the faculty, you started to have a lot more politically progressive people um, move into universities, okay? Um, And then, of course, the American media system has constantly been a a similar sort of target of conservative Mm -hmm. ire. Um, even then. And so what happened with Buckley is that Buckley started the National Review. The National Review marked a pretty major sea change in the way that media operated on the right. And you can see that what happened in starting in the 60s and progressing radically through the 70s and 80s was a set of parallel institutions to what the right viewed as left-dominated institutions. Mm -hmm. So if universities and mainstream journalism were, quote, left-dominated institutions, again, let's just talk about the fact that most um, media is corporate-owned and all of the rest of it, and it is not it is not very left. It's about as left as its corporate ownership allows it to be. but it is if if you can see it that way, then this rise in parallel institutions created kind of literally other realities and in which people could operate and in which their ideas found a lot more purchase. So if you can't win a debate against James Baldwin, which who could? Who can, <laughs> right? Not even sure James Baldwin could win a debate against James Baldwin. And and if you know, and James Baldwin, obviously, we go back and we watch these things, and they're so incredibly prescient. And he's talking about things that I wish we weren't still talking about, but we are. Um, and um, if you if you can't win those debates, so you can't you can't beat intellectuals, and you can't beat the mainstream press, then what do you do? Well, you create think tanks. <laughs> And you create the National Review, and then you create Fox, and you create all of these other kinds of things, and a talk radio empire Mm. that allows you to circulate a set of narratives and a set of perspectives that don't necessarily have to have the same sort of rigor (laughs) as they would have to if they had to pass through peer review at more typical institutions, whether that's in at the New York Times or it's at the University of Washington or it's whatever, right? So you don't have to go through the same sort of process to get something put out on Fox or on talk radio or, um, frankly, I'm not even sure in the National Review online anymore, uh, as you used to have to do if you wanted to get your stuff heard. So if you don't have the gatekeepers— Right now, there's lots of problems with gatekeepers, but if you don't have even sort of a set of um, standards by which we all have chosen to operate in terms of veracity mm-hmm. and in terms of um, uh, sharing a kind of empirical reality, and you're simultaneously saying that things like higher education are not 
are not good. They're bad. In fact, expertise is kind of bad, right? So you take you go from Buckley, who was absolutely a product of the top universities. I mean, obviously Yale and you know all the rest of it, um, and and who did in fact have standards of rigor in terms of what they would publish. Now we can go back and have lots of problems with things that sure. the National Review published um, at the time um, or even now. But there were at least a set of sort of agreed upon <laughs> uh, principles mm-hmm. and 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 people were, were participating in a shared reality. They may have had different perspectives on it. But I think what has happened with these parallel institutions it is, is that it has created a space where – the people that they used to sideline, like the John Birchers and all these kinds of things that Buckley, et cetera, really did try to boot and eliminate from the conservative movement, have taken hold, right? And I think if you look at what happened um, with the uh, Southern strategy and with um, with post Reagan, basically, and post-Reagan, what you see is, is this, and I saw a great quote that said something like, it's not that these institutions have moved further right. It's that they've moved further away from reality. Hmm. So there's, now I'm not even sure that people who would consider themselves, quote, real conservatives would look at this movement and say, that's my movement, right? And I think you're you're also seeing some of that fracturing now too. But I think because these structures exist, they gave people platforms that had a kind of gravitas, even though they were not the sort of traditional spaces where people might be able to circulate these ideas. A couple of things I want to I want to zoom in on that you mentioned. Thing one is, is that our friends in journalism mm-hmm. are partially to blame in this dynamic. Oh, absolutely. Because what they do is, <laughs> is these parallel institutions that are created, they essentially grant to them in the name of objectivity and neutrality. They grant to them legitimacy they don't actually deserve. And so they treat a policy paper from uh, the Heritage. For, or... Heritage or something even worse like the Center for Immigration Studies, mm-hmm. which essentially is like a white nationalist organization like masquerading as a think tank. And they give it the same level of credulity that they would give like a paper from the University of Texas or an academic. Okay. Right. And so there's an issue there. Uh, you talked about the echo chambers and like in the, the alternative conservative reality. And what it really made me think about are two things. Uh, I want to ask about them in this order. Okay. So in the pre-internet era, there was this whole like direct mail campaign where mm-hmm. conservatives use mail to send out these newsletters. Mm-hmm. And like the, you mentioned the John Birch Society. Uh, Ron Paul had one. Yeah. Uh, in your research, have you looked at how the use of conservative direct mail was a, uh, a catalyst in changing the discourse within conservative movements? You know what? I have I have not. But that is a really smart point because we often think and I teach my students how to do campaigns Mm -hmm. and we sometimes forget um, even legacy media that isn't so legacy, like the newsletter, like these kinds of things. I mean, Ron Paul's newsletters have continued to be brought out in uh, in more current eras as like, uh, have you seen some of the things that are being published in here? Right. Um, and I think that that there's been a lot of this that has operated. Some of this is, has been really obvious. Then there's been a lot of things that have operated much more under the radar. 
I think what's happening now is just that we are so much more aware of what's out there, but the proliferation of what's out there is so extraordinary that it's difficult to track. So I think that's a really smart point, and it makes me think I probably should go back and look at some of those things. <laughs> well, and so the other one is you mentioned talk radio. Mm-hmm. And so here's where I need to own my own uh, my own issues in this conversation is that so <laughs> in the 1990s, mm-hmm. uh, I was very turned off by Clintonian centrism. Okay. And I did not see a viable like left movement that was attractive to me. Okay. And so like I became a conservative. And so I spent my college years as a member of the College Republicans. I was vice president of the chapter. Uh, and I saw myself in like the – it wasn't the Buckley tradition because like I could see through Buckley's nonsense. But like I could excuse away some of the things that people like Goldwater did where like his opposition to the Civil Rights Act was not because – well, the cover I gave was not because he's racist. It's because he believes actually in the principle of state, states' rights. Mm-hmm. Somewhere but. <laughs> I know, I know. Somewhere between 9-11— okay. It's I love that you own this. Yeah. <laughs> it's worth it out there. Somewhere between 9-11 and the start of the Iraq War, uh-huh. I was disabused of this okay. and, like, had a kind of, like, what are you doing, Nathan moment. Mm-hmm. I say all this to say that one of the catalysts that brought me to conservatism was AM talk radio. Yeah. And to this day, when my wife and I are driving, like, I will pop on AM talk radio and listen to it because it's actually entertaining. It really is. And here's the thing. Doug is just shaking his head in the studio at me. <laughs> so, I think it's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about AM talk radio as a tool and a catalyst for conservatives to hone their message yeah. uh, and how AM talk radio influences like mainstream political discourse. So I think that um, – Obviously, the sort of standard bearer of a lot of the things that we would see, that we see now even, is somebody like Rush Limbaugh. Um, And I don't know um, how many of your uh, regular listeners had ever known that Rush Limbaugh also had a television show. It was very short-lived, and the reason it was short-lived is because it turns out that's a really poor medium for somebody like Limbaugh. He's not— TV friendly. He's not likable in the same sort of way on television as he is on the radio. Or or, or was. Or was. <laughs> yes. Radio. Sorry. Yes. Um, well, be it whatever, um, uh, Mr. Limbaugh. Um, but what I will say is that he was very attuned to his audience. And mm-hmm. one of the things that conservative talk radio, that especially he, but others who emulate or who, who have tried to emulate that sort of style have done is to recognize that making people feel part of something is an extraordinary, extraordinarily persuasive mm-hmm. strategy. And... Limbaugh recognized that there were disaffected people um, out there, and he recognized how to speak to that kind of disaffection by offering them community. And one of the ways that he rhetorically constructs community is the same way that nearly any group 
would do, which is to create the in-group and an out-group dynamic, right? And so there is a kind of sense of—there's an esoteric sense about participating with AM radio. And what that means is that there's a community that is in the know. So what esoteric—what I mean by that is um, you're in on the jokes, right? and and you are you know kind of the 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 sayings the you know how the, the format of the show you know the kinds of guests that he's going to have on there you are part of this kind of in group so even though the medium is mass yeah. and um and even though there's millions of people listening to it you still feel in some way welcomed into this community and i also think because it was radio, you know, people, if people were commuting, um, I, I have, my understanding is that Limbaugh was extraordinarily popular among people who traveled for a living. So people who did things like drive um, semi-trailers or, you know, whatever it is, right? If you're in the car for a really long time, mm-hmm. For most of us, the time that we listen to the radio is in the car and and maybe not anymore to the degree that we used to at home because we can stream, we can do other kinds of things. We don't have to be kind of at the mercy of whatever is on the radio. But I think that Limbaugh also hit at a turn, at a shift in kind of a fulcrum in our media consumption, too, because radio was still such a huge platform at the time. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have the sorts of television options. And now, you know, most of my students and probably most of yours don't even watch television on television. They just they use some other device and they they stream everything. They're not actually watching like network TV. Mm -hmm. These things weren't really that wasn't really an option. So people were still in and had grown up in a mindset where they listened to radio as their entertainment. And I think when we think about the sort of demographic of the audience, it was largely that sort of, at that time, middle-aged men, mostly, um, who were in that kind of shift and maybe felt like... They weren't sort of dialed in. They weren't, you know, they weren't as much part of a community anymore. They weren't, you know, changes in the way that we work, changes in how much we work, changes in people's, the fact that people were commuting massively to work, you know, all these kinds of things. And we can talk about lots of social um, situations that created what I think, at least for Limbaugh, was kind of the perfect situation where he could come in and fill this void and what people really want and this is this is everyone this isn't people who you know listen to him or listen to am radio what people want is to belong to something and they want to see themselves as being part of something greater than their own small corner of the universe and i think in many cases in which they don't feel like they're seen or heard or valued or whatever it is, right? Or their life seems sort of boring and it's mundane and blah, blah, blah. And here's this person offering them a kind of entree into a community of others. Um, and I think it's not hard to see 
how people would find that super appealing. As you're talking, I think about a chap who has like their 90 minute commute to the exurbs. Well, and actually, yeah. this, right. This is back. Yeah. This is back in the day before Seattle traffic got even worse, worse, worse. And now it's 90 minutes everywhere. So like right. the person who's commuting now is like two hours north to Marysville. Right. Right. How, how that becomes a talk radio listener and how that provides community. It was funny when you were talking about like learning the rhythms, like again, I still listen to AM talk radio on long mm-hmm. road trips. And so somebody calls up Dave Ramsey and they're like, oh, Dave, here's my financial situation. And you're like, oh, Dave's going to kill him. Right. You, like you, you, you get you to just know you learn the rhythms. You learn the rhythm for sure. All right. I think we'll take a break here. And when we come okay. back, I want to pick up the idea of how we get from Goldwater to Trump and then also your thoughts on victimhood. So we'll be back. Hey, farm fam. It's no secret I've been podcasting from Abu Dhabi these past two years. But what I haven't talked much about is how I found this school, ended up teaching abroad. During the hellscape of the last four years, Hope and I decided that we needed a change. And we turned to Search Associates to make it happen. Search Associates works with 800 schools in 125 countries, so we have many choices of where to go. They assigned an associate to work with us directly to learn more about our backgrounds, our interests, and find a position that would be the perfect fit. Hope and I both wanted to teach at the same school, which you'd think would make search harder, but working with search associates, you'd never know it. Their personal touch approach made it a breeze. Another great thing is that the associate who's assigned to help you is a former school leader, most often a former head of international school, so they really get the international school scene. I can't recommend them enough. Now, here's the thing. The political situation might have changed at home, but the benefits of teaching abroad are still clear. A great job combined with a rich cultural experience that comes from experiencing another culture. Listen, don't take my word for it. More than 40,000 highly qualified teachers, administrators, counselors, librarians, and interns, and other educators have used Search Associates to find positions in top K-12 international schools. So don't wait another day to pursue your dream of teaching abroad. With Search Associates, you'll take that journey step-by-step, from filling out the applications to selling your new school with confidence. Visit searchassociates.com to start your journey. Thank you to Search Associates for helping us live our dreams and teach abroad. And thank you for your support of this podcast. And we are back. I would like to thank you sincerely and humbly for downloading the show today and giving us a listen. The Nerd from our podcast is part of the Channel 253 Network. We are a local network of podcasts, elevating voices, and giving perspectives you won't hear elsewhere. Uh, if you like what you're hearing on this show and want to support our other shows, Citizen Tacoma, IWL, uh, Crossing Division, and What Say You?, uh, think about joining as a member. It is channel253.com slash membership. A membership is $4 a month or $40 a year. And your membership gives you access to our member-only events and also our member-only Slack. And the Slack channel is always a place of curiosity. Uh, you may have seen, if you're in the Tacoma area, that the Pierce County Sheriff Department has severed their contract with uh, Pierce Transit. Uh, that story started on our Slack channel with Hallie Carnegie. And so if you want to be at the forefront of what's happening in the Civic Mood in Tacoma, uh, the Slack is the place to be. Also, uh, on the next Nerd Farmer Academy episode, I want to talk about uh, inflation and the 1970s and that stagflation period. So if you're an economist listening to this, uh, holler at your boy at nerdfarmpod at gmail.com or holler at me on Twitter. All right, Amy, let's do this. Uh, You in the first half, did this time leap where we talked about Goldwater mm-hmm. and then we kind of jumped to Trump. And I guess what I'm wondering is, is help me understand better the path that conservative rhetoric takes from Goldwater and from uh, William F. Buckley to modern conservatism and the modern kind of reactionary politics we see in America. Like what is, how did we get from there to here? Because like, I, I, 
I, I just I just want to hear more from you about like mm-hmm. that, that path and how we end up where we are now. So I talked a little bit about the sort of rise in parallel institutions that gave people space to try out a whole bunch of ideas that weren't really finding purchase among um, their intellectual peers uh, in other political on other parts of the political spectrum. One of the things that happened that I think is is relevant to now is that some of the ideas that, of course, like the Birchers, et cetera, were espousing, which were super anti-intellectual and really anti-expertise, started to find more mainstream homes in conservatism. Mm. And so when you look at the intellectual degradation that has occurred on the conservative in conservative rhetoric from Buckley or Goldwater to Trump one of the most one of its most notable features is a degradation of expertise and a denigration of expertise and part of that is in order to uplift think tanks Mm -hmm. as institutions that are doing as good, if not better, sort of scholarship and study on political policy and American history and whatever it is. So at, that sounds like you're talking about basically like an inverse popul- populism. So you, you right. denigrate the established institutions, mm-hmm. but then you elevate your own new intellectual institutions. So it's you're, you're engaging in populism against the establishment, but then elevating your own intellectuals in, or, or elites, not intellectuals necessarily. Yeah, your elites. I mean, the sort of the irony that shouldn't be lost on anyone, right, is that so many people who occupy a lot of time and space and energy on the political right mm-hmm. are products of the very institutions that they publicly despise, mm-hmm. right? So Ted Cruz or Josh, Josh Hawley, Hawley or, right, um, Elise Stefanik, any of these people who hold degrees from Ivies and are all JDs from Ivies and, you know, or mm-hmm. from Stanford, I mean, other I, uh, Ivy parallels, um, Ivy adjacent schools, and and yet, right, are going on and on and on about all of the eggheads and the nerds and the, you know, people who are super problematic because, of course, these institutions are, in people's perception, left aligned. So one of the things that I try to get at in this book project is to talk about how it is okay to to be a victim if you are a victim of the right people, of the correct people, right? And and if you are a victim of, of universities, right, and their sort of political correctness, which is so much of this critical race theory thing, is, is this idea that we're all just being bombarded by um, people who want to hate on America and whatever else. Um, and, and all of these people are, are of course, uh, products of leftist institutions. So the the anti-intellectual, anti-expertise piece, I think, is really significant in between Goldwater and Trump. And it takes a while to get there. It's not like <laughs> it's not like um, 
I mean, Nixon, any of these other people that you would say may, may not have been uh, extraordinary presidents, but were at least intellectual people. Sure. I mean, they were smart people and they um, they capitalized on being smart people. They were not afraid to be smart in public. Right. And I think that um, because being smart in public is now seen as so much tied to this sense of political correctness or that you have to be, quote, woke or progressive in order to have a sort of intellectual demeanor in public, what you're seeing is people just going in the opposite direction. So I think one of the shifts from someone like Goldwater to Trump is this um, it is both an actual decline of their expertise, <laughs> but it is also a strategic decision to tether themselves to a literally different reality in which this right-wing populism, which always, by the way, is a nationalistic movement, sure. and right-wing populism is always that way, right? There's populism all over the political spectrum, but right-wing populism is always this, right? It's always this sort of nationalistic kind of thing. Um, if you if you want to be on that bus, which seems to be the bus that, you know, Trump is driving and no one's getting off, I mean, or very few people have gotten off, Um you know, that you really do have to kind of bracket the fact that you do know better on some mm. level. But in, from a strategic perspective, you are going to lose huge sections of your most enthusiastic base by, in you know, let's say about January 6th, for instance, even telling the truth. Or even asking for accountability, right? So you have this very um, – you have this line, and I don't know when exactly we crossed it. I really don't. Um, but I would guess it's probably around George W. Bush uh, when, when Karl Rove, you know, said that we do create our own – we create our own realities, Right. What I say today becomes tomorrow's mm -hmm. reality. That notion that rhetoric is constitutive is really important. It's that it used to be constitutive of a shared experience, and it is now uh, not that. It is now constitutive of an experience that is that many of us look on and think, how on earth do you wake up every day and this is what you see and this is what you mm. say? I also think that in most ways, Trump is not an anomaly. The one way in which Trump is kind of an anomaly is back to when we think about when his campaign first began and there was that whole weird conundrum of people didn't take him literally but took him seriously or didn't take him seriously but took him literally. I can't mm -hmm. remember exactly what it was. And we weren't learning from watching demagogic leaders from other places, Italy, Venezuela, et cetera. Hungary and Orban. Right. 
Um, and our journalists didn't learn from their journalists who kept trying to raise red flags and say, if you treat this person as a celebrity instead of as a politician, you are opening the door to them being able to do anything they want, essentially, because celebrities operate in a sort of different universe anyway. They are afforded latitude that typical politicians are not. So if you think about the absolute mess, I was going to use a different word, but this is for teaching purposes. (laughs) I'm proud of you. Mess, thank you. uh, That was the 2016 Republican primary debates where Trump would just steamroll every other person in these debates by calling them ridiculous nicknames, but somehow this worked. It worked to shut everyone down. Jeb Bush was low energy, little Marco Rubio, Lion Ted, you know, all of these kinds of things. And you're thinking, this is just stupid. Like, I can't believe that this is working. And yet... I'm really interested in that framing, though. So essentially, the media treated Donald Trump like a celebrity rather than a politician. Absolutely. And didn't hold him to the account. They held the other politicians who were still politicians. Who were still on stage with him. So their expectations of them were to behave, even though in my, you know, my my personal opinion, yeah. their politics are garbage. They were at least practiced at a kind of polite conservatism mm-hmm. that was— you know, um, much more palatable to a wider array of people. But what it didn't do is tap into the sort of id that Trump was able to tap into in the same sort of way that I think Limbaugh was, especially as he got a foothold in the 80s and in the 90s. And um, and I think I just think that part of this then is this. This dismissal of the seriousness of Trump until it was far too late. Mm -hmm. And I think even now you can tell that a lot of these folks miss him Mm. because Biden is boring. And and we're saying these folks, you mean the journalists, right? Not not the conservative politicians, but the journalists. No, no. I actually don't think conservative politicians miss him at all. Um, I think in some ways they're very glad he's no longer in office. But I also think they still need him. And I think that, you know, if you think about media as being entirely about ratings and conservative media in particular creates um, an outrage It is an outrage factory, right? Mm. The point is to make you angry and scared all the time. And what happens in this is my friend Jen Murchia has um, wrote a book called Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. Uh, She's been on all kinds of national shows about this, talking about this um, issue. But what she talks about is they have your attention but you don't have your reason. So what happens then is that I don't think that Goldwater, et cetera, were outrage manufacturers. I don't think that's how they operated. That was a different sort of the tone wasn't what it is now. Mm -hmm. The ubiquity isn't what it is now. And they really did try to tamp down on what what to them would have been crazy people and to us is just kind of 
typical. And we don't tamp down on on that anymore. So you're, you're touching on the presence of outrage in conservative discourse. Mm-hmm. It f- seems to me that like the complementary, the shadow to outrage is victimhood. And so yeah. a smart person I met once wrote, <laughs> we might then ask, what is the purpose of victimhood as a rhetorical device? That is, what does victimhood do? I would remind readers that I am not talking about victims of real injustices, such as institutional racism, sexism, misogyny, homophobia, anti-Semitism, poverty, violence, terror, and so on. Victimhood as a rhetorical strategy does several things. So how do conservatives leverage victimhood in their rhetoric? So one of the, I think one of the defining features, you know, uh, of of modern conservative rhetoric is this notion that people are victims. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are victims of... Like I said before, they are victims of institutions, um, left institutions. They are victims of universities who just um, they want to have, quote, viewpoint diversity. Right. Um, And what if your view is that, for instance, it was 100 bazillion degrees here the last couple of days. And what if your viewpoint is, well, climate change is not real. It is not viewpoint diversity to include the position climate change is not real. It's actually just bad teaching. And so I think, you know, there's there's that, right? So not all ideas are created equal and not all ideas are supported equally by evidence uh, and by fact. And not all ideas are part of what we would consider to be kind of a shared empirical reality. So... You can be victimized, quote, in these situations by um, mainstream media, by universities, by scientists, by Anthony Fauci, by Joe Biden, by, you know, whoever it is, right? All of these people and all of these institutions are problematic because in, in what has become a sort of typical refrain in conservative media— Folks who are conservative, folks who are evangelical Christians, folks who are, you know, pro-military, whatever it is, are victims of this supposedly woke mob, right, that are all trying to destroy this sort of whatever this traditional American Mm -hmm. way of life is. And... Once you conceive of yourself as a victim, it is that is actually a really hard place to get people out of. Um, it's it's not as hard as you would imagine to get them into it. Sure. Um, and what I think is really odd about victimhood on the right is that there's simultaneously this sort of discourse that everybody is a snowflake searching for safe spaces. Right. Yeah, we, we're all victims. But they're soft. But our victimhood does not make us soft. This is this is it's so so something that I see them do is I see them weaponize th- to take terms and co-opt them. Yeah. And then weaponize them. Absolutely. And then in doing so, degrading both the meaning of the term and using it as a slur. So like you said, woke a couple of times. Yeah. Woke was a term that comes from the black community. Mm-hmm. It's been ravaged as now a slur. Absolutely. Uh, I, I've seen or this happen. Critical race theory. Critical and theory are words that are used all the time. Right. I've seen this happen with uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's writing about intersectionality. Of course. And so like they talk about like the intersectional left. And that's a slur. Mm-hmm. I, 
I, cut, I, I interrupted you accidentally. I didn't mean to. No, but, it's okay. But, but in particular, is there a term in academia for the co-option of your opponent's language and then using that term in a derisive manner back at them that conservatives seem to traffic in so effectively? There probably is, okay. and I'm currently – um, my brain is turned off a little bit for the summer, so I'm probably am not going to be able to come up with it. But there is the notion um, there's a notion, right, that there are kind of levels of suffering, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that if you can if you can have a claim to victimhood, what you've done is you've claimed that your pain is worse than somebody else's pain. So I make it really clear in this project that when there are conservative people who are victims of real victims sure. of real things, right? And I think, in fact, a lot of these folks who feel so outside of what they see as mainstream culture are victims of the same systemic problems that many of the rest of us are victims of, right? And I I don't think that anyone is immune to those kinds of things. Capitalist exploitation, wage stagnation, uh, a healthcare system that does not take care of their needs, chronic Absolutely. Pain, Just lack of access to even basic resources that that should be available to people. And and I think that there's a lot of shame in that. And so one of the things that I deal with, especially in this chapter on victimhood, is that shame is a thing. And so I'm, I'm trying in this project to also think about feelings, political feelings, right? And how do we enact political feelings? Shame is a feeling that is shame is one of the least uttered words in therapy Hmm. because saying you feel ashamed actually can make you feel more shame. Right. And so when we think about what is the opposite of shame, some people would say that it is pride. And I don't actually think that it's pride. Um, I think that it is agency. I think it is a sense that what you're doing and who you are is of value mm. and that you are that you are part of something. And so you can see how if if you're being positioned because of your, political ideology as a victim, one of the things that victimhood rhetoric does is it creates that in-group, out-group dynamic that I think Limbaugh was so excellent at creating in, in radio, but that all of these folks create. You look at the, what Trump's construction of the other mm-hmm. is, and you know all the moves. We've heard it since 2015. Well, we've heard it even long before that with sure. the requiring of a long-form birth certificate of our... 44th president. Um, And we know what this is, right? We know who the other is in this construction. Um, And and so I think the other thing that that Trump really understood and understands better than a lot of people is that there's lots of ways of having this kind of belonging and showing that you're victims of the right people. And one of these ways is things like the red hat, things like attending rallies, things like this that create a, a visual cues even of your membership in these 
communities, that mm-hmm. you do not feel isolated, right? You are part of something. Even if you are all victims, you're at least victims of the right folks, yeah. right? So you can then feel as if you are all aggrieved. But the issue with with conservative rhetoric is that it never aims to cure. So one of the things that we think about when we talk about victimhood is that if you think about um, there's there's a, a theorist named Kenneth Burke who talked about victimage. And the idea is you can throw off your sense of um, guilt, purge your sense of guilt, right? If you think of like biblically, right, you would have some prophet would come down from the lonely mountain, sure. right, Jeremiah or whoever, and would tell you that you've sinned and would tell you if you do these things— right? Then you can reclaim your covenant with God, okay? We have lots of covenants with lots of things, right? So if we say, and we're always sinning, so this this just keeps starting over again, right? So what are people to do? There's two options, essentially. One, they can scapegoat other people, and that's mm-hmm. a much preferred option, right? Because uh, that means I don't have to take responsibility for my participation in a, in a system that has not, in fact, benefited me, or um, that I... Uh, I haven't been successful in the ways that I wish I had been successful or whatever it is, right? Even though, really, that's in many ways not my doing, but I'm a product of a system that has made it so I don't have the resources that I could use to be successful. The other option is what's called mortification, which is self-blame. Now, most people don't choose mortification because it's very painful to look inside and say, you're right, I am the problem, and then make some sort of radical move, right? And so we see we see conservatives trying this, like Jeff Flake's last book, where he was the conscience of a conservative, um, where he tries to do this and say, we created the situation in which Trump, you know, we created this vacuum into which Trump stepped. But there's no audience for that. No, and people yeah. were, of course, furious at him, and then he's a rhino, and this is why he retired, and thank God he's out of the Senate, and all of this kind of stuff. And so it's really hard to, um, one, to get people to to want to admit that they feel ashamed, um, and and we don't want people to get into, like, a spiral of it, but the problem is, in order to get them out, we have to give them we have to give them dignity. Mm. And so one of the things that I think about when I'm looking at what does a rhetoric of dignity look like, that's also really hard to find. It's even hard to find on the left because on the left, dignity tends to be about work. Mm. So when we say you have the dignity of a job, okay, but shouldn't we just inherently have dignity because we exist? Yeah. And that is really, it is hard to find examples of that going on um, because you you have people who are largely dialed in, like Sherrod Brown or Elizabeth Warren or some of these other people who are still going on and on and on about the dignity of a job and the dignity mm-hmm. of, you know, um, being able to support your family. And, and I'm not saying there's not dignity in that, but it's harder to find examples of people who can give you just a pure rhetoric of of that your your value as a person is that you are here sure 
Um, and I don't and I think that is what this kind of community provides people, it provides them. I don't think it's a real dignity, but I think it is kind of a stand in for what dignity might really feel like. And I think in late capitalism in the United States, we don't really have we have trouble languaging that into being because our sense is, well, now you just sound like a socialist or now you sound like a okay, you know, I don't know what to do. It's hard to know what to do about that because until we can figure out how to create, how to give people a sense of dignity that is just theirs because they are inherently valuable, we're, st- we're going to have people who are easily victims of this outrage machine. I mean, I think they are actual victims, but they're not victims of the thing they think sure, they're victims sure, sure. of. They're victims of manufactured outrage. Well, and, and that's that's where I want to go, I think, in closing, right? So we're having this conversation as we put voice to tape. Right now, we're in the midst of the moral panic about critical race theory uh-huh. and the 1619 Project. Mm-hmm. Not more than two fortnights ago, we were in the midst of the moral panic about cancel culture. Yeah. So we've gone from free speech is being threatened to we want to limit the speech of teachers. Mm -hmm. But not more than a fortnight before that, we were in the outrage, the moral panic about like Dr. Seuss. And if we go back a year or so ago, maybe two years, maybe even three years, we were in the moral outrage moment about uh, transgender bathrooms. And and so essentially conservative rhetoric surfs along these moral panics, which if you're paying attention are happening with more rapidity and frequency. Yeah. And so – There's a question for a reporter who's not in the room right now about why don't they recognize moral panics when they happen. But I guess my question for you is— And why do they give them so much— Yes, yes. —credence when it's just utterly ridiculous? Go ahead and preach. Go ahead Mm -hmm. and preach. Um, My question for you is somebody who studies rhetoric, how do you— like I, the, the the wrong way to frame this is is to ask how do you fight the rhetorical traps they set. The right way to ask this question is is you've pointed out the hypocrisy of conservative conservative rhetoric, where they are the party of personal responsibility, but mm-hmm. also a party of victimhood. Mm-hmm. Where they're the party of cancel culture is bad, but also we want to censor teachers. What is the? How do you view? Those coexisting hypocritical like beliefs moments, mm-hmm. and how do you approach those as someone who studies rhetoric? So, it's. I think one of the challenges is that our audience is everyone and no one all at the same time, right? So, if you think about who are we talking to, mm-hmm. right? Who might be the particular and the universal audience for this? You know, I don't know, right? So there's there's demographics of particular kinds of media outlets, and then there's kind of everyone else who would encounter the text, right? And Aristotle talked about the difference between people who are particular, those that are in the immediate audience, and then people who are universal, anyone else who comes into contact with this. The problem is anyone can con- come into contact with anything. And so now uh, we're in this incredibly fractured moment where it's just sort of everywhere. Um, and and it's hard to see, especially with things like negative polarization, how you how you get out of um, how you make sense of these things. How do you help people? And I really think, honestly, I do think there is 
I do think the job that we could be doing, that more of us who study these kinds of things could be doing, is to be thinking about how do we help people break that particular cycle? Mm. So I think if you want to think about this in a classroom setting, if we take it down to a really super local level of things that sometimes teachers might do in a classroom or that you might do in a conversation with another person that where this other person seems to be occupying this sort of these hypocritical spaces of victimhood and um, um, and, and yet this sort of weird um, muscularity of of masculinity and white masculinity that is that is really popular on the Christian right or the Christian right and the the political right. Um, one of the things that I think about that I do in the classroom and that a lot of people do is start to ask people questions. So rather than reacting, and I think this, I really do think this takes practice because it is easy to just be like, these people are lost. Sure. And there are some people who frankly are lost. Or, or just screaming, that's hypocritical, right? Right. Like, they're, 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 yeah, sure. Right. That's not persuasive. Um. One of the things that that we do know is persuasive, though, is to point out the problematic tactics that get people to believe certain things. Mm -hmm. They might struggle to sort of move away from the belief, but if they think that people are lying to them or they think that they know the rhetorical tricks that, like, Trump uses or Limbaugh uses or any of these other people might use or used, um, they— are more open then to thinking about how have I been influenced by this trick? Where do I see this trick happening? Mm -hmm. Or where do I see this happening? And I also just think if you can stop people, like I think a lot about this guy that really self-identified as a men's rights activist when he started at PLU and uh, was former military and... Um, Anyway, he had a very different attitude when he graduated. And part of the reason is that people just kept asking him why or how does that work or mm -hmm. tell me more. And it's remarkable when somebody is then forced to defend a set of ideas that they've never really been asked how they – arrived at in the first place, the best thing that we can do in terms of persuasion is get them to help persuade themselves, right? Um, and if we can get them talking, that that is a technique that can work. Now, again, there are some people who are just shouting, you're not going to get them. And I mean, honestly, that's really sad. There are a lot of people who have had really fractured relationships in the last several years in particular who have lost people to Fox or to Newsmax or OAN or some of these even more glaringly mm. um, out there platforms. But I think a lot of people have really just never been asked why they think what they think. Right. Where did you hear that? And how, what does that mean? What does it mean to you? Right. 
Um, I don't know that there's a really – there's not an easy solution. Otherwise, we would have done it. But I do think that can work on a smaller scale. And again, I think it requires that you have some amount of rapport with people. Sure. I think it matters that you're not someone who's coming at them – in a really judgmental way, because, again, if they really feel like they're victims, you coming at them actually increases their sense of aggrievement and victimhood. You are putting them on the defensive and you're saying, well, that's just ridiculous or that's not even true. You're right. But um, at what cost are you right? So I also have have thought about and what I'm trying to do in this book as I get into it, is to talk about how might we f- find other frames mm-hmm. for constructing some of these conversations such that the first response is not defensiveness but is like a pause. Can I just get you to pause? Yeah. It's very Socratic of you. It's very on brand. Uh, <laughs> please keep me posted on this book project. I I'm will. fascinated by it and I love what I read. Um, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. It's your third appearance. You are now a member of the Smoking Jacket Society, and I appreciate you. If people want to follow your work online, where should they look? So I do most of my political ranting on Twitter. My handle is at Amy underscore prof. Um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn and all of those things. Um, there's lots of Amy Youngs, but— um, You're the best one. I'm, I'm obviously the best one. <laughs> Amy, thank you so much for coming on the show. We'll Connor forever, y'all. Wash your damn hands. If you're not vaccinated by now, like, what are you doing? And then, please, for the love of God, convict the police that killed Manuel Ellis. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. <laughs> Barf. You can't do that right before I start. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.